Hello. Hello. Happy April. April flowers. I know. And spring break, I think, isn't it? I think you missed spring break last oh, month. Oh, dear. I keep thinking April is spring break. Time to adopt a baby. I know it is. I suppose. Anyway, too old to adopt a baby. Um, so last month, we kind of talked about Breathe Right. And we kind of actually started talking about asthma and kind of hinted that perhaps it was a, a podcast in the making. Guess what? We're going to talk about asthma today. And, you know, it's interesting because we were leaving work today and we had to pass all the signs that say that in our hospital, people are not allowed to smoke anywhere near hospital grounds. And definitely in Canada, especially in B.C., you can't smoke anywhere near doorways and, and different things. We have pretty strict anti-smoking type legislation. And so kind of was thinking about that and, and thinking about how to why that's great for health promotion. But why do we look at smoking and all these different smoke-related diseases? And so, of course, it comes back to asthma because I'm very thoughtful about stuff like that. So that was, really... That was very insightful. It was very insightful. But really, when I started and investigated it, you know that the Asthma Society of Canada reports that actually 3 million Canadians are affected by asthma. And that's and about... We found out just recently that our population is now... 35 million people. Wow. Because they just released the census data. Oh, is that right? So that's what, 10%? Uh, eight. Yeah. 8%. It's eight or 9%. That's, that's significant. It is. So six out of 10 people with asthma do not have control of their disease. Mm -hmm. That's huge. And in the Asthma Society of Canada, their website states that every year about 250 Canadians die from asthma. It's like 50 children and 200 adults. Most of the deaths, the society states, could have been prevented with proper education and management. Asthma is the leading cause of absenteeism from school and the third leading cause of work loss. There are 146,000 emergency room visits due to asthma attacks, and it's estimated that the number of people suffering from asthma will grow by more than 100 million worldwide by the year 2025. An estimated 235 million people around the globe suffer from asthma, and this number is rising. Worldwide, deaths from this condition have reached over 250,000 annually. I kind of hope that this impresses all of you, the magnitude of this chronic disease, and how important it is for us as healthcare professionals who are seeing these patients at the bedside to not only treat them, but to also educate them about controlling their attacks and reducing any permanent lung damage. And I think we're all so blasé about it that we don't recognize that this is a significant health risk in our population. So we wanted to talk to you all about asthma, both what it is, how we treat it, and some future research around new treatments for asthma. So let's kind of start with some real basic things. So what is asthma? Probably the simplest definition is that asthma Do is... Do I get a to talk today? Is that your part? No, I just feel like I haven't talked Talked yet. for a little bit. Oh, dear me. You're Very needy today. You're taking over again. Well, I am certainly the mommy of this uh, environment. But anyways, I will let you talk in a minute if you just let me finish. Um, what is asthma? Probably the simplest definition is that asthma is a chronic inflammatory disease of the airway that causes patients to complain of shortness of breath, chest tightness, cough, and wheezing. It seems that patients who are asthmatics react, or perhaps overreact, very much like Landon just did, to stimulant like um, aer aerial allergens, cold or dry air. 
Over time, those bronchial tubes become inflamed, and this leads to changes within the tubes and airways, which cause the muscles around the bronchial tubes to tighten, and the airways then become narrow, in medical terms, bronchospasm and bronchoconstriction. Also with the increased inflammation, mucus is produced within the bronchial tubes, which further restricts airflow. So the strongest risk factors for developing asthma are a family history of asthma and or allergies like eczema or allergic rhinitis, exposure in infancy to high levels of antigens such as house dust mites, and exposure to tobacco smoke or chemical irritants in the workplace. Would you like to say something now? <gasps> Yay. Yay. I get okay. to <laughs> So let's talk about diagnosing asthma. Sure. This is not a one-time diagnosis. No. If anyone has been told you when they go to their emergency department with some bronchoconstriction told you have asthma and you walk out, that's not quite the way asthma should be diagnosed. No, probably so not. It does require a complete medical history. So in children, some signs and symptoms that may indicate asthma louder or faster than normal breathing, frequent coughing or coughing that worsens after play, clear mucus, runny nose caused by hay fever, frequent missed school days, limited participation in physical activities. Physical exam, examining the ear, nose, and throat, making sure there isn't anything in there that's Mm -hmm. causing this. Listening to the chest, looking at the skin for signs of eczema or hives. Spirometry, which we just talked about last month. Yeah. Uh, A methacholine challenge test. Methacholine inhaled causes the airways to narrow. So if it triggers asthma symptoms, it can be indicative of asthma. Some additional tests that may be done to rule out other conditions Mm -hmm. because it's easy to just glom on to asthma and miss something else. So chest or sinus x-rays, gastroesophageal reflux disorder assessment, sputum tests, blood tests, maybe a chest CT, rule out some other infectious things, that kind of stuff. And then finally, allergy testing. You might do skin, blood, or both. Although it's not used to diagnose asthma, it can help to identify another allergic condition such as hay fever that may be causing or worsening your asthma symptoms. Right. So you can see this is not something you typically would see done on an emergency department. Absolutely it? not. And yeah. it, needs, it needs some further work up. Yeah. We will talk about the emergency department management of asthma, but understand that many hospitals and many organizations, such as the Canadian Thoracic Society, have very credible protocols and guidelines about emergency department management of asthma. We're going to talk in broad terms rather than specific guidelines Um, And we're going to kind of use some case studies to build this around of some common presentations. Yeah. Um, But I would encourage you look at your national guidelines or Mm -hmm. come on, steal from Canada. Yeah, exactly. We're we're very kind people and we (laughs) give away a lot of our stuff for free. So you can go to the Canadian Thoracic Society's website and look at their national recommendations for asthma guidelines, which actually most of our country has adopted into standard order sets, preprinted protocols, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I absolutely agree. Having credible sources and finding protocols to standardize treatment actually improves patient care. Absolutely. So I think it's important that we all do that. So ED management of asthma should be directed really according to the acuity of the patient. And here in Canada, we determine acuity by using the Canadian triage acuity scale. So we're just going to give you a case study. Certainly, we're going to give you the worst case scenario, and we'll talk about how we manage these patients. So a 16-year-old female with a history of severe asthma is brought to your community emergency department after about a week of respiratory symptoms that have suddenly become much worse. She has been admitted to the hospital four times this year, including one visit to the ICU. 
Her respiratory rate's 45. She's using every accessory muscle she has, but she doesn't appear to be moving much air. In fact, when you listen, her lungs are quite silent. She looks tired, and the monitor shows her vital signs as a tacky at 140, a blood pressure of 99 over 60, and an oxygen saturation of 88%. So the triage nurse makes her a CTAS level 1, sends the patient directly to her care area. Now, CTAS level 1 patients with asthma are near-death asthma, so they're unable to speak. They're cyanotic. They appear lethargic and confused, and with either a tachycardia or a bradycardia with otosats of less than 90%. Now, understand these people look pretty unwell and they're cyanotic, so I wouldn't totally rely on their otosat because certainly they're peripherally shut down. So don't be spending a lot of time at the front yeah. trying to get an otosat. They, they look like they're trying to die. Exactly. You don't need any Hopefully anymore. you've clued into that. Exactly. So certainly it makes sense that the management is really directed to the ABCs in this situation. O2 to manage um, SpO2 greater than 92%, IV and monitoring, and other diagnostic tests like blood work, ABGs, and chest X-ray, kind of a standard. Right. Right. But I think probably but, we should yeah, talk about some of Obviously, we the... want to treat this asthma, exactly. not just look into it. Right. So let's talk a bit about medications, mm-hmm. a uh, common order that may be issued to yeah. a near-death or almost near-death asthma is continuous Ventolin and Atrovent or yeah. Salbutamol and Ipratropium yeah. until they start to get better. So there's two ways we can really give that. Mm-hmm. Two ways we typically would give it. Right. One is the nebulizer. And another is through an inhaler. And what do you think the most common one to jump to is? Well, it's the nebulizer. I know. People love that nebulizer. They love that thing because (laughs) they just love spreading the TB around the whole department. (laughs) And so people feel that nebulizers are more effective. Mm -hmm. The primary advantage is that a nebulizer is easy to use. You put it in the mask. You put it on the patient yeah. and you walk away. Yeah, exactly. It's done in about 10 minutes and you mm-hmm. think, wow, I've misted this magical mist into them for 10 minutes. I must have given them like amazing amount of medication. <laughs> exactly. And the reality is most of the medication went into the room. Every time they breathed in, yeah. the mist went into their lungs, picked up whatever crud was in there. Mm-hmm. And when they breathed out, it all came out with them. And and we come from a hospital that has a rather um, traumatic history with infectious disease as yeah. being uh, a first presenter of some killer diseases in uh, the world. Yeah. And so we're kind of sensitive to this. And yeah. so when I go to other hospitals and see people putting neb masks on, I, I'm often... <laughs> look and go, wow, we would just never do that where we're from no. because of our experience with exactly. some of these airborne diseases in the past. So the reality is multiple studies have shown that patients using an MDI or a multi-dose inhaler, sorry, meter dose inhaler with a spacer do just as well, if not better than patients using a nebulizer. Yeah. And the benefit is you're not spraying the TB around the room that exactly. they also have. Yeah. They are much quicker to use. Two puffs takes 30 seconds as opposed to 10 minutes for yeah. the nebulizer. The MDIs have fewer side effects. They don't cause as much tachycardia and tremors, which some right. people are very susceptible to. Um, and they don't aerosolize bacteria, viruses, other fungi, that kind of thing. Um, so it is actually a very effective way to give it. You can give a lot more medication mm-hmm. a lot more quickly. Yeah. And I've had very severe asthma patients that... You know, we're not talking the community, take two puffs of your Ventolin. Yeah. This is, you know, emptying inhalers into people. Exactly. And um, 
who are near death yeah and sometimes even bagging it into them yeah and the difference to landon is the mdis as opposed to the mdis with spacers because the mdis right. you have to kind of coordinate with their breathing and nobody's good at that even experts exactly yeah whereas the spacer you don't actually have to coordinate it with their breathing right because they still they're taking breaths and the the medication is in that spacer so they're taking all of that in when they're actually able to breathe in. Absolutely. So and, it is really important. And you can adapt ventilator, BiPAP, bagger. Exactly. You can. There's a thing where you can put there's the a side little port, canister right? in the side port and just go yeah. pss, 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 yeah. and just so, be squirting it in as, yeah. as the breath goes into them. Way better than nebulizing. Yeah, and here we are on our soapbox because I'm not entirely sure why people are hanging on to this sacred cow. And I'm not sure if it's because they're asthmatics are at home using an MDI plus or minus with a spacer so they feel when they come to the hospital they would like us to escalate the treatment that could be and so they think that the nebulizer is an, is an ex escalation of that treatment which it isn't they probably haven't been using it correctly or there's some other or underlying not thing or not enough yeah. absolutely so I, again kind of annoying but um, so thank you very much for highlighting that for us why don't you move on to the less exciting medication? <laughs> exactly. But just as important, thank you very much. The definitive treatment for all asthma patients should be corticosteroids. Now, a lot of patients will discuss or a lot of people would discuss that oral and IV steroids are equivalent. But certainly in this kind of CTAS level one person, right. we're going to use... Wasn't, she wasn't awake and talking. Right? Exactly. Very so well. she's going to need IV steroids. Not going to pop a pill in her. Exactly. Yeah. Now, understand, though, that steroids will take about six hours to have kind of a noticeable effect. But, and I and in this kind of patient you're doing with lots of other things that probably precede this, but understand that the sooner you give it, then that six hours goes by and then you're going to see an effect. And why we use corticosteroids is it doesn't just reduce inflammation, it can also reduce some of that mucus production as well. And when it's taken consistently, it has been shown to actually improve lung function, improve symptoms, reduce asthma attacks, and admission to hospital for asthma-related issues. So any corticosteroid would work, like methylprednisone, like 125 milligrams, or hydrocortisone, 100 milligrams IV. And if the patient is less acute than in our current case study, you could even just give prednisone 50 milligrams PO. And discharging those types of patients uh, on prednisone uh, for a short period of time actually has shown to decrease return to hospital uh, or decrease in exacerbation of asthma. So that's why corticosteroids are so important. Now, if your patient continues to have a poor response or no response to your Ventolin Atrovent, which you're giving with an MDI with a spacer, and or IV steroids, you could you should probably try magnesium, 2 grams IV and 50 milligrams of normal saline or whatever you're giving. Just find out that it's compatible over 15 minutes. Now, there is some evidence that magnesium works in very sick patients. So it seems the sicker you are, the more likely magnesium is going to help. If you're not that sick, we're not sure it's going to help at all. Theoretically, magnesium induces bronchial smooth muscle relaxation and also may increase that bronchodilator effect. Now, certainly if the patients don't respond to the above, and you may we may have to consider intubation, now, this should really be the last ditch measure. I read somewhere that a common teaching is when thinking about intubating an asthma patient, wait and then wait some more. And then? Continue to wait. But? Don't wait too long. Oh. Yeah. In fact, there's a lot of discussion about when when you are considering intubation, intubating and 
asthmatic patient, BiPAP should almost certainly be tried first. If you appreciate it, intubation increases your airway resistance, increases your dead space, which is probably not great for your asthmatics. So severe asthmatics get respiratory fatigue, and BiPAP can certainly provide that type of pressure support that they may need. Right. Right? So we probably should talk about if we've waited too long or we've waited... Right. The right you time. You didn't follow gonna, your teaching and I you waited know. too long. We've waited too long, but then uh, we've decided, gosh, we better do something about it. We need to intubate. Yeah. So yeah. So ketamine actually can be a, quite an effective drug to use yeah. with asthmatics. Unfortunately, right. the, the sedative effect of the ketamine means you can't really walk up to someone on the brink of death and yeah. give them ketamine to smooth muscle relax yes, them because exactly. it also knocks them out. And right. in someone with low respiratory drive and exhaustion... That's not a good choice it. yeah so we would usually use ketamine to intubate and then possibly ketamine infusion afterwards yes for their post-intubation sedation it also is a smooth muscle relaxant right so you get that bronchodilation as a bonus yeah and they're appropriately sedated exactly so when you are having to consider intubating your asthmatic patient then think about ketamine as an induction agent absolutely would be far better than all the and other ones the other because ones. of those bronchial smooth muscle sedation very good. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. So there are many podcasts about BiPAP and treatment of asthma and many blogs. Uh, check out MCRIT and Life in the Fast Lane if this is something that interests you. I think as nurses, we need to know the path or road that we're heading down. And it is important to be alert to the best practice guidelines. Perfect. So we discussed the ED treatment of critically ill asthmatic, which identifies the mainstay of all asthmatic treatment, inhaled corticosteroids and IV or PO steroids. Um, there are a variety of ED clinical presentations of asthma. Yeah. So, so we're going to compare them to our CTAS level one sort of thing score yeah. because in Canada that's what we use, and actually most of the world does as well. Um, so CTAS level two or severe asthma. Mm-hmm. So the first one we called near death asthma. Yeah. Um, CTAS level two or severe asthma is best defined with a combination of objective measures. So FE, uh, forced expiratory volume in one second, FEV1, yeah. which yeah. you learned about last month, um, peak flows, uh, oxygen saturation. We and, talked about all that last month. <laughs> and clinical factors that re- relate to the severity of symptoms. So vital signs and history of previous severe episodes. Oxygen saturation less than 90, peak flow less than 40% of predicted or previous best. And in children who are unable to do spirometry, Clinical features in O2 saturation are used to estimate severity. Yeah. What, what CTAS has really tried to do is objectively yeah. list some things. Yeah. Because we always look at shortness of breath and go, what's mild, moderate, severe? Yeah. CTAS has made their best effort yeah. using some research yeah. to say this is what we're calling severe, mild, exactly. near death. And so these are some objective signs yeah. to kind of help you along in that. I think some of that that's kind of confusing uh, for me sometimes is, you know, or maybe for everybody else, so maybe you and I should clarify that, is that really when you see somebody who's not perfusing very well or oxygenating very well, because really you don't want to stop these people at the front if you have a bed, right? No, I, I, and to do a peak flow. If there and is to a do department doing things. peak flows at triage, yeah. stop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And focus on patient flow exactly. and get them in a bed. Do not yeah. be doing this stuff at triage. No, exactly. So I think I, I want us to be clear that Absolutely. even though that this is the definition, they're trying to objectively give you measures, but somebody who has severe 
asthma is probably not speaking in full sentences um, and they probably are a little bit diminished with their otosats and they're probably a little tachycardic so just uh, i think don't, don't pull out the no i don't think that that's a good idea at the front door no exactly um the level three patient or what they define as sort of moderate mild moderate are having showing signs of asthma shortness of breath on exertion frequent mm -hmm. cough or night awakening unable to lie down flat yeah peak flows 40 to 60 percent predicted o2 sat 92 to 94 right and the actual definition of mild is peak flow greater than 60 yeah and oxygen saturation greater than 95 so you can kind of see it's it's the scale yes if you're really keen about it Look it, look yeah, it up look in it up. the CTAS stuff, which is available at the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, Physicians website. Yeah. But just know that asthma is a spectrum. Exactly. And really when they walk through the door, if they look sick, they are. Yeah. Don't treat them at the door. Yeah. Put them somewhere. Exactly. And, and for example, in our emergency department, we have a chair. Yes, in exactly. In the acute care area. Yeah. That is a care space because, and they're only for asthmatics. Yeah because they can come in and need treatment right away to turn them around, but they don't need the bed and all that kind of stuff necessarily mm -hmm. exactly. if you don't have one. Exactly. Just remember that mild asthmatics also can have severe attacks and severe asthmatics can have mild attacks. So it is relevant to document their medications, any changes in their environment, changes in medications and previous attack patterns. Right. Have you been intubated? Do you require ICU stays? How many times have you been here yeah. in the last year for this? Because you want to identify high-risk patients, right? Right. Yeah. And they should be placed in an appropriate care area. But don't use the lack of that. Everyone has, well, not everyone, but an asthmatic who has been intubated yeah. had their first time that they got intubated. Yeah. And so don't write off, oh, well, you've never been tubed for your asthma before. Mm -hmm. Well, they all had a first time. Exactly. And this may be this person's first time. So it's just important when you're thinking of where to put these people. Asthmatic people who don't look right probably yeah. shouldn't be going in back hallways just to get one dose of Ventolin and I'm sure they'll be fine. Yeah. Let's arrive early, get yeah. big fast, treat them with all the team. And then, you know what? If 20 minutes later they look fine, they can get out of the bed, get dressed and go back in the exactly. waiting room for follow-up. So yeah. In many emergency departments, if you're lucky enough to have a respiratory therapist, they're heavily involved. Mm -hmm. the, the advantage of that, obviously, is patients get good care from another professional on the healthcare team. The disadvantage is sometimes nurses remove themselves from yeah. that situation. And we... We really should all be together in the plan. Sure. And we should all be educated on it because yeah. you never know. Guess what? Someday yeah. in your community, there are going to be more patients show up than RTs available. Yeah. And I'm a big proponent of nurses need to know all the skills the RTs know. Because when you got one RT and seven patients with yeah. smoke inhalation, guess what? Six of them are going to be managed by a nurse. Exactly. And four of them are probably going to have asthma symptoms. And Absolutely. if you've never treated someone with that, you don't want to be the nurse standing there yelling for an RT who's with a sicker patient. And we did talk about the fact that the mainstay of treatment is not just the Ventolin atrovent, it's also steroids. And right. that piece of it really is within the scope of the nurse itself right. uh, that's caring for the patient. And again, that's that winning and losing type thing. You want to be anticipatory that this person is getting worse, this get, patient is getting better. And so you do need to be on top of it and, and being able to kind of arrange what, where do we go from here as a team, right? Right. So in general, 
as I say that, in general, asthmatics have a bit of a treatment regime, which includes controller medications and rescue medications. So controller medications are for kind of long-term control. So makes sense, controller control. Um, it's a daily medication that's used to prevent or improve asthma symptoms in pe- patients who experience frequent symptoms. And the decision to use a controller medication is really based on how often you have daytime or nighttime symptoms, how often you're coming to the hospital, how often you're requiring rescue, how often and you need steroids, how it impacts your daily life. So, you know, when a patient gets um, diagnosed with asthma, the decision about which kind of drug that they need, do I need something every day? Do I just need something when I'm having problems like exercise-induced asthma? I'm going to do exercise. I'm going to use a rescue. But these are patients who certainly have an impact in their lives and they need to take it every day. I know I'm kind of harping on that because I think one of the problems with a lot of patients is that they feel like, well, I don't need it every day. And they have these um, peaks and, and, and dips. And that's actually really bad for a lung. And you end up with this really bad uh, lung capacity and lung disease. And that's where we don't want to go. So um, there are so inhaled corticosteroids are really kind of the first line therapy. So your Ventolins, that sort of thing. or Atrovent. Oh, sorry. Atrovent. I'm sorry. I've got myself mixed up. There's other controller medications, kind of uh, Leucotrien modifiers. An example would be your Singulair. I think that that's the one that we see quite often. Uh, longer acting beta antagonists. These tend to be used for moderate to severe asthma and they kind of prevent nighttime symptoms. So Cerevent. And then sometimes we have combo inhalers, which both have a corticosteroid and a long-acting beta antagonist. So uh, on the market right now, they have Advair Discus or uh, Simbacort. You probably have heard some of those things. Just a word of caution that long-acting beta antagonists have been linked to severe asthma attacks. So they should be, they're supposed to be helping, but if you just use them without a combination, sometimes they can actually trigger an an asthmatic attack. So it's important to stress to patients when you're discharging them from an ED visit, how important it is to continue the regular control of medications for long-time control. Keeping their asthma under control stops that inflammatory process and decreases long-term pulmonary um, complications. So the last one is the rescue medication. So it's really a medication that works within minutes to open the airway. So short acting antagonists like um, Atrovent. So it is Ventolin, darling, at the beginning. Oh, Sorry. Yeah. So Ventolin was the first one. And this is Atrovent or oral and um, intravenous corticosteroids. Yes. Okay. There we go. All right. And so that's basically it. You need a, con- a controller medication every day, depending on how severe your asthma is. And then you may also, on top of it, have a rescue. Rescue medication. Right. When you're having a need to open them up quickly. So when you're having like asthma-induced, um, exercise-induced asthma, then you could use a rescue. So all of these are inhaled. Yes. Through an MDI. With a spacer. With a spacer. Except. Right. There is some exciting news. Really? In the world of asthma research, researcher cost, researchers are cautiously optimistic following a Lancet-published trial in September 2016 about an asthma pill called Febipiprent. <laughs> Why do new drug companies I know. make the weirdest names of I drugs? I know. Febipiprent. Febipiprent. Anyway. Yeah. It has shown to significantly reduce the severity of the condition. It was uh, carried out in Leicester University in England and it showed that the pill decreased the symptoms of asthma, improved lung function, reduced inflammation, and repaired the lining of the airways. Now, 
It was a small trial, mm-hmm. 61 patients, single center design, short duration. So it's obviously not standard treatment at right. this point. But the study was promising enough that they, it, that typically how this works, yeah. it launches a few more studies exactly. that then become bigger studies and, yeah. and you know, 100 years later, yeah. there's a drug. Um, this would be the first new asthma pill in 20 years. So keep an eye out for that. Yeah. It's kind of interesting though, isn't it? it? Is. It's kind of exciting. So in summary, asthma is a chronic dis- disease. It is increasing in numbers, both in Canada and worldwide. So please take it seriously. I think probably this is the disease out there that I think that we're as staff the most blasé about and as patients oh I have a bit of asthma and they don't really understand the complications so unless you've seen somebody in a very bad asthmatic attack I don't think you appreciate the severity of this. How bad it can get. Yeah Yeah. absolutely. Um, Secondly is that please use MDI plus spacers. The research actually shows it is as good and even better than using a NEB for treatment and it will decrease some of the infection type issues and get more drug in safer. And the third thing is education is so necessary to ensure that asthma patients and healthcare professionals treat and manage asthma attacks and to prevent further asthmatic attacks. And I think one last thing, intubation is a last ditch effort with asthmatics. Please don't intubate your asthmatics. Try BiPAP first. If you are going to intubate them, think of ketamine as your induction agent. Anything else to add, Landon? I just have one clarification. Yes. Because we threw around the term beta antagonist and beta agonist. So Uh, the proper drug class is beta agonist. agonist. You would not give a beta antagonist Antagonist. to an asthmatic. And we we interchanged those terms. So all of them, short, long, medium-acting beta Beta agonists. There we go. Apologize for that. We both did it. I know. Okay. Uh, That's it for this month. Thank you very much. We will see you in May. May. Bye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursem.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursemCast. And also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.